Blind Tag Podcast. I am Kyle Nashheim, but I am not your host today. So, you know, full disclosure, I'm still on vacation. I'm still a couple weeks away from starting the new season with the NCAA March Madness prediction show. We'll definitely start out with a bang, but I've also been... You know, during this break, working uh, hand-to-hand with my guest today. So, uh, creating what is what we are calling NCT Sports. NCT Sports, we're going to have a show where we're talking about the big sport, sporting news of the week. And our, our plan is grow from there but as of right now that's going to be our flagship show uh it's called off the cuff and also this podcast will be i guess the best way to put it is we'll, i'll be putting this podcast under that umbrella with the ability to actually have visual podcasts that will be up on youtube now my co-founder, TJ O'Sullivan, we just were doing Under the Sun, but we decided we wanted to do in this one. You know, Under the Sun was awesome. It gave us the best um, ability to work on our craft. But we're going to take it bigger. We, you know, dreaming bigger. So um, TJ is going to start a podcast himself. And it's going to be about, you know, once a week he does a deep dive on a topic. It could be a topic that's in the news, not in the news, just, just whatever. But he didn't want to put it out. He wanted to test it first. He wanted to do an episode, test it before we launch NCT Sports. And that is where I come in. So consider this a backdoor plot. Not plot, pilot, excuse me. And thinking to yourself, what in the world is a backdoor pilot? Well, very simple. It's when an existing show has an episode, has a guest star on it, has a situation, and that situation is the basis for a new show. So... This is going to be the backdoor pilot for Deep Dive with T.J. O'Sullivan. I hope everyone enjoys, and when he gets done, I will close the show out. And once again, let everyone know when you can expect our next episode. So, I swear I've done this before, but let's throw it over to T.J. And now, you're listening to A Deep Dive with TJ O'Sullivan, presented by NCT Sports. The NBA All-Star break is coming to a close. I'm recording this on Wednesday, February 22nd, the final day before games resume on Thursday. Um, All-Star break is a great time in the NBA. Not only is there the All-Star game and the All-Star festivities, but for the players themselves, it's a chance to get a breather. You know, 82 games is a lot. You know, there's been talks about 
uh, shortening the season and, and doing whatever. But the, the All-Star break is a highly coveted event for players just to get a breather. And that hasn't changed. But one thing that has changed this particular All-Star break is the entire landscape of the Western Conference. Russell Westbrook capped things off as he was traded to the Utah Jazz and then proceeded to flip from Utah to the Los Angeles Clippers. So he'll be playing in the same city, but with different colors. Then you have Kyrie Irving leaving Brooklyn, and he's going to pair up with Luka Doncic in the Mavericks. See if they can get some uh, some playoff contention. Better their chances towards a championship this season. And speaking of championships, Chris Paul and Devin Booker get the addition of Kevin Durant. Seeing if Phoenix can hoist the trophy. And now all of a sudden, it's no longer a tale of two teams. It was the Brooklyn Nets versus the Los Angeles Lakers. That's how it started last season. It was LeBron, Westbrook, and Davis versus Durant, Harden, and Kyrie. Harden has already a year removed at this point. He's been moved over to Philly. So now I can officially record this episode. The Super Team era, or this particular chapter in the Super Team era, is over. Brooklyn has disbanded. The Lakers have gotten rid of their big three. They're back to LeBron and AD. And I really wanted to talk about this because, you know, I know that we just kind of introduced ourselves and you don't know, you don't know me, but I can tell you that everyone who would listen, I told them that neither one of those super teams was going to work. You can call it 2020 hindsight and that's perfectly fair. It's perfectly fair. But I wanted to bring you on a little journey through the era of the modern super team. I want to take you through the franchises who have prospered and the teams that haven't. I want to bring you on this journey just to get my overall point across. And I want to preface it with, I have not played competitive basketball at an elite level. I haven't. You know, that's... the. <laughs> That's why you're hearing me on this podcast and not watching me in the NBA. So take everything that I'm saying with a grain of salt. But what I have done is I have studied the game of basketball. I've studied sports in general. And to me, the three things that told me that these super teams were not going to work were the numbers, the case studies, and the play styles. I'm gonna take you through all of them. We're gonna start with the numbers. And what I mean by numbers, you know, we can go through stats all day. I can tell you about win shares and wins above replacement player and, and or value above replacement player in the, uh, in the NBA. Uh, but I wanna talk about one that I think a lot of people overlook, and that's shot attempts. Over the past five NBA seasons, an NBA team per game would average 88.5 shot attempts per game. 
Now, I wanted to take you through their six players, each of which formed a big three, both on Brooklyn and in LA. And I wanted to tell you in their best statistical seasons, and I, I based that based on either statistics in Kyrie's case or an MVP season or their best MVP season, most recent MVP season. And I wanted to show you how many times per game each particular player shot the ball. So we'll start with Russell Westbrook. His MVP season, of course, was highlighted by the fact that he averaged a triple-double. This is in 2016-2017. He shot the ball 24 times a game. And now you're probably thinking, TJ, there was nobody else. Steven Adams was the second best player, and he wasn't much of a scorer. He basically did everything else. And I know that. But that was, in my opinion, Russell Westbrook as his at his most efficient. And the triple-double says it all. Then we go to 2017-2018 Anthony Davis, his highest MVP voting, where he placed third. He shot the ball 19.5 times. 2012-2013 LeBron James, that's the last time that he won an MVP. So I also did another year for him. But that season, 17.8 shots per game. That was back in Miami. So the other year I did was 2019-2020, the year that LeBron and AD with the Lakers won the NBA championship. He shot the ball 19.4 times. So above 17 times a game, that's consistent. Let's look at the Lakers now. With that 88.5 shots per game that I said before, the Lakers, with those numbers, talking those three players at their most efficient, in my opinion, 61.3 field goals attempted per game, leaving just over 27 shots a game for the rest of the team. That roster was not just those three. Okay, It wasn't just Westbrook, AD, and LeBron. They also had uh, Dennis Schroeder, who has shown that he is a more than capable shooter. Andre Drummond, who, you know, he he was on both teams uh, that we're going to be talking about here, Nets and Lakers, and he wasn't much of a factor, but he was an offensive presence a couple of years ago. Kyle Kuzma, Marc Gasol, they both need the ball, and they're effective players. So now let's take a look at the Nets. Same sort of same sort of deal. 2013-2014 MVP season for Kevin Durant. He shot the ball 20.8 times a game. We'll look at 2018-2019, where KD placed 8th in MVP voting when he was with the Warriors. But he shot the ball 17.7 times per game in that stacked lineup. So he's still getting his shots up. Now, Kyrie Irving has never received an MVP vote, but in 2019-2020, that's what I viewed as his best statistical season. As, uh, when you, you know, and it was most recent when he had such a season where he played a ton of games um or excuse me this is when he, he had he played in 20 games um and this was the only time really that he played without Katie Harden or LeBron and he shot the ball 20.8 times and he was effective in those 20 games 2017-2018 MVP season for James Harden the year that put him on the pedestal or the Mount Rushmore of isolation scores he shot the ball 20.1 times. 
in that season and the two season that followed for Harden where he was at his best, 22.3 shots per game over those three years. So now you look at the Nets, 61.7 field goals attempted per game, which leaves just under 27 shots for the rest of the team. Very similar numbers. And that roster, at its peak, included Blake Griffin, LaMarcus Aldridge, again Andre Drummond, Seth Curry and Patty Mills were non-factors on that team, but still effective scores when given the opportunity. And all of the guys that I just named, whether or not I broke them down, they're efficient players in other systems. You look back at their numbers and they were a top player for an organization at some point in their career. So I think that there's just not enough possessions or not enough shots to go around. I think that's what it comes down to for the first point that I'm trying to make here. You've got a lot of guys and all of them are talented. This is by no means a knock on any of these players. All of these players are fantastic. But when you put them together, you've got 12 other guys. These are two big threes. You've got 12 other guys on each team that need the ball in order to be effective. I'm sure that a Greg Popovich or a Steve Kerr or an Eric Spolstra is going to be able to come up with a game plan where they, when they know that only three guys are going to shoot the ball. It's going to be one of these three. Here's how you stop each one of these three. Here's how we account for the other two off ball. And it kind of showed with the success that they had or the lack thereof. Anyway, we'll go to some case studies. Okay, we're going to talk about the teams that worked first. Why did the Warriors work? Warriors are the modern day dynasty. Okay, and I want to I want to differentiate that terminology because I'm going to use both terms a lot. There's super team and then there's dynasty. Okay, the Warriors are a perfect example of the difference. Steph Curry, he was drafted by the Warriors in 2009. He's a lethal three-point shooter, best that the game has ever seen. He's also a great passer, and his mere presence on the court draws defenders. Klay Thompson, drafted by Golden State in 2011. Again, lethal three-point shooter, and he is the epitome of 3 and D. And then you have Draymond Green, who was drafted by the Warriors in 2012. Rebounder, defensive star, facilitates the offense as a forward, does everything but put up 25 points a game. He is the perfect, I don't want to call him a role player because he is a star, but he is a star in all of the places that the Warriors need. They don't need Draymond to put up 20 points a game. They need him to let the rest of the team cook. You put those three players in a system that drafted them, you put them under a head coach of Steve Kerr, who before starting with the Warriors was a member of four championship teams as a player and all four championship years in a row, the Bulls' second three-peat and then the following year when he went to the, uh, the, uh, the Spurs. He knows how to win. He learned from two of the greatest head coaches the game has ever seen in Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich. Each player, talking Steph, Clay, and Draymond, they play their role to perfection. They complement each other. 
Like I said, Draymond doesn't need to score. He takes pride in the non-glorious stats, and he's on record saying so. Steph and Clay's presence on the floor together causes defenses to spread out, opening up the middle for a drive for now Andrew Wiggins, but in the past it's been Andre Iguodala. It's been, you know, they've had a, 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 a rotating carousel of small forwards and power forwards um, that can play inside. It led to four championships and counting. It takes good players, but it takes a great coach and a great culture to make a championship run. And what do I mean by culture? If you haven't seen The Last Dance and and you don't you haven't followed basketball closely, go watch The Last Dance. Okay? The Bulls dynasty is one of if not the greatest dynasties in the history of basketball, possibly even sports. It was the will to win by Michael Jordan that rubbed off on the rest of the team. Phil Jackson, the Zen head coach that he is, pulling Jordan back down to earth and focusing all of their energy on not performing well, but winning games. And there's a difference. Jordan was a 30-point-per-game career scorer, but that's what they needed him to do to win. Scottie Pippen did what he needed to do. I guess the better example is Dennis Rodman, who all he did was rebound. But that's what they needed. Then you can talk about the Spurs, who drafted Tim Duncan, drafted Manu Ginobili, drafted Tony Parker. They made a draft night trade in 2011 for Kawhi Leonard, but at that point they had already had four championships and Kawhi got them number five. 15 years, five championships. That's a that's a pretty good run. And I think that there's an obvious pattern. When you draft players into a system as opposed to acquiring them with the promises of money and the promises of, of championships, I think that you have a much better... I mean, those two teams show you that you have better success. So now we'll take a look at the modern super teams because I could get into Durant joining the Warriors, but that's a part of my next point. I don't think that there's much of a culture in the modern super team. And that era started, in my opinion, in 2010 when LeBron James took his talents to South Beach. It was LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. And their mentality was, we'll win because we're supposed to. We'll win because we're better on paper. And I thought that it was the most effective super team there was, but not because, you know, not because they went to four straight finals, not because they won two of them. You know, two and two is is break even, and I'm not knocking the fact that going to four straight finals isn't one heck of an accomplishment, but I think it's because you had Dwayne Wade, who was a bona fide scorer before LeBron got there. He took a back seat. He was willing to do what was willing. He was willing to do what needed to be done. Not saying that that's LeBron's fault. I think that LeBron. I think anyone could tell you, especially now that he's the all-time NBA career leader. I think we can say that LeBron's the more talented scorer than Dwayne Wade. But it took Dwayne Wade taking a backseat for them to go to four straight finals and then win two of them. 
But now, as I say all that, going to four straight finals, as good of an accomplishment as that was, let's take a look at the rest of the Eastern Conference at that time. The Celtics had just come off their own big three of Pierce Garnett and Ray Allen. They were aging. They didn't get to the finals past 2008, where they won. They were really the only test for the Heat, and Ray Allen ended up joining the Heat in the last year in 2014. Pacers, they met the Heat in the 2013 and 2014 Eastern Conference Finals. They had no notable success before or after those two years in the playoffs. I mean, you can count the 2012 second-round exit in the playoffs, but regardless, it's short-lived success. Then you had the Sixers, led by Elton Brand, Thaddeus Young, and Andre Iguodala. They met the Heat once, and they lost first round. And then you had the Derek Bulls, the, the excuse me, the Derek Rose-led Bulls. Their second best player was Joe Kim Noah. Derek Rose is a heck of a player, but it there was there was nobody around him. There was nobody around him at that point. You can say all you want about Joe Kim Noah. He was a good role player. He wasn't a star. He never was. Next. You have the Knicks with one of their most exciting years in, in recent franchise history. Lynn Sanity, Carmelo Anthony, Tyson Chandler, Steve Novak had that stretch where he was the best three-point shooter in the NBA. It was an exciting year for the franchise, but they couldn't pull it together. And that was it. That, that was it. There was no one else even a threat for Miami. And even the the teams that I just named, they, they, they couldn't touch Miami. Of course they went to four straight finals. It was a weak Eastern Conference at that time, and that's just the facts. It's not it's not that I, I I'm I'm not a I'm not a LeBron hater. I'm I'm not. I think that LeBron is is a fantastic player. I'm against super teams. And this is why. I think that it's misled. It, it's it's not a it's a causation, not a correlation. So then you have the Cavs in 2015 after LeBron takes a stint in Miami. And you're going to notice LeBron is in a lot of these conversations, but he, in my opinion, he started the modern way of thinking with super teams. He goes back to the Cavs. They had drafted Kyrie at that point, and they recruit Kevin Love to come in, and there's another big three. Once again, that's too much offense, not enough touches to go around. LeBron is the number one scoring option on any team. He's on no debate. He's he is he's a legend for a reason. Kyrie needs the ball to play his most effective. He's an isolation scorer. He needs the ball. Kevin Love, he was the leading scorer in Minnesota. And you could make the argument that there was nobody else on Minnesota. Of course he had to score as much as he did, but he's still coming out of a a, a franchise that basically said, okay, we're gonna build a team around you. You are the end-all be-all, and now you're the third scoring option. And I think that Kevin Love did a great job, but it's tough. You have to imagine that he's coming off of 26 points per game the three years leading up to leaving for the Cavs. 
and all of a sudden they're like, okay, you're going to get the ball a couple times. You're going to put up maybe 17 points. Maybe. But you play second and third fiddle to LeBron and Kyrie. It's got to take a toll. It has to. But I'm not going to stress on this one too much because they did run into the Warriors in the prime of their run. So I'm going to I'm going to move on. Okay? Cuz I'm not going to take away from the fact that they went up against one of the greatest teams that's ever been assembled and they still went it, it was it was LeBron versus the Warriors. That was the headline for what? Like 17 straight years. <laughs> so I'm not going to I'm not going to worry too much about the Cavs. But before we get back to the Warriors, let's talk about the one caveat in the acquiring talent with money aspect, and that's the 2018-2019-76ers. They had Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler, J.J. Redick, Dario Saric, Boban Marjanovic, Tobias Harris, Amir Johnson, the emergence of Shake Milton. Like, these were guys who they played well together. You had great locker room guys in Boban and Tobias. Amir Johnson, great defender. Great three-point shooting in J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler. Great defense with him as well. And then Joel Embiid's Joel Embiid. And then there was Ben Simmons. And the front office. Those were the two things that went wrong. Starting with the front office, they didn't want to commit to Jimmy Butler, which I can't believe. With the success that they have and the amount of fun that that team had, the 76ers were fun to watch that year. They didn't want to commit to Jimmy Butler. So they signed and traded him to Miami. And he was one of the biggest reasons that that team was successful. But then you got to go to the obvious, you know, after Jimmy Butler leaves, they end up in the Eastern Conference semifinals in 2021. And Joel Embiid critiques Ben Simmons for his unwillingness to shoot and says that that cost them the game, particularly when he passed up a wide-open dunk and head coach Doc Rivers did not... I mean, he, he didn't he didn't help. I think it was misinterpreted, but, you know, just taking it at face value, he was asked in a press conference after that game if Simmons could be the point guard on a championship team, and he replies, quote, I don't even know how to... Res- I don't even know how to answer that right now, end quote. Ben Simmons, he held out of the 2021-2022 season. He didn't want to take the criticism from his teammates and his head coach. He didn't want to be put on blast in the media. And I think that there's a lot of wrong all over. But that, I think that that brings the egos into effect. How that meshes. These are, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons have been the best players on their teams their entire lives. So is Jimmy Butler, even though he didn't have anything to do with that situation. So have most of these guys on the team. I mean, that's just the that that's just the reality of the NBA. And they're all brewing together. And Ben Simmons just completely holds out until he's finally traded uh, to uh, Brooklyn. So now we'll go back. Well, we talked about that where front office and egos can have an effect on a super team. But let's go back to the end of the Cavs run. And now, uh, or excuse me, as the Cavs started, we'll talk about 
the uh, Golden State Warriors, who already have Steph, Clay, and Draymond, which we talked about. But then they became a super team when they added Kevin Durant. And it goes back to culture. Why did that work? Because KD wanted to win. He was so tired of coming so close. He got to the finals against LeBron's Heat. That just so happened to be one of the times that the Heat won. It was was LeBron's first championship. He goes back. um, he, he, He was willing to take a smaller role. He understood that the Golden State was not going to be Durant's team. He understood that. This was the Splash Brothers and Draymond's team. He was going to step in and provide what he could. He may have been the most talented. He wasn't going to step in and hijack the system. I wouldn't consider it a super team. I would I would consider it to be a great addition, a fantastic a phenomenal addition to what has been for the past 10, 15 years at this point, the best system in the NBA. And then you look at the Boston Celtics from 2018 to now. They drafted Jalen Brown. They drafted Jason Tatum. They drafted Marcus Smart. They drafted Terry Rozier, even though he's no longer on the team. But they picked up the pieces to complement those three, those four. And, you know, Horford, Al Horford was a huge pickup for that team. He was a veteran presence, stretch five that they needed. But they were a system. That was a system. It wasn't It wasn't a super team. That was a system. They all came up together. They learned each other's strengths and weaknesses, and they became a great team. Which brings us to talking about learning their strengths and weaknesses play style, which is... I saved the best one for last. The one that is so black and white to me, I don't know why this gets overlooked as much as it does. Let's talk about the Nets. KD, Kyrie, and James Harden. KD is an elite scorer no matter what you do, no matter how you look at it. He can shoot. He can drive. It. He's an all-around phenomenal player. That's what happens when you give a seven-footer the agility of a guard. Kyrie Irving, he is an elite, possibly the best of all time. I think that he and Iverson are in a league of their own when it comes to isolation scoring. You can add James Harden to that that conversation. It could be those three. But where he differs is he's a shooter. He's a three-point shooter. Kyrie can shoot, but not like Harden. So they are the same, but they are very different. The one thing that is in common of all three of these, these guys all need the ball. They can't all have the ball at once, but they all need it to be successful and most efficient. None of them are known for their defense, except for Harden, because he's notoriously he, he is notorious for taking plays off, and he's made a huge step in the right direction since he got called out in the media for it. But that's the only time defense comes into uh, comes into play when you talk about any three of these guys, is the fact that James Harden was at one point not a good defender. They're all scorers. They're all some of the league's best scorers. 
That alone should have told you that wasn't going to work. And then they add more stars. They add Blake Griffin. They add Drummond. They add Aldridge. They're all former franchise players. They all need the ball in order to be the players that, you know, the the, the efficiency behind the name. It, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work. The Lakers, in my opinion, was just stupid. I think it was just pure stupidity. All three of the players are fantastic alone. But what's the key to success with any team with LeBron on it? You surround him with shooters. That's all you have to do. You surround LeBron with shooters. He is a great passer. He is, no, he is an elite passer. And he has the ability to score like no one else. Surround him with shooters. Let him drive and kick. Let him drive and dunk. Those are the only two options you need for a LeBron James team to be successful. What's the key to success with Westbrook? Westbrook's a six foot four version of LeBron. He's the same player. He needs shooters. He needs Steven Adams. He needs a big guy. But that brings us to AD. I think that AD could have been the replacement for Steven Adams. He grabs a ton of boards. He's more effective offensively. But I think he could have been that guy. What happened? AD needed touches. But he's another guy that needed the ball. And he needed it within 15 feet of the basket. Before you start with the whole... Anthony Davis is a stretch forward. No, he's not. No, he isn't. He has the ability to shoot threes. He is not a stretch forward. There's a huge difference. I do not care about his 30% three-point field goal percentage. He shoots the ball 1.6 times a game from behind the arc. He is not a three-point shooter. To put that into perspective, some of the the elite three-point shooters or I wouldn't even say elite. I would say some of the best three-point shooters in the league. They shoot the ball four or five times a game from behind the arc. And I'm not talking Steph Curry because he's close to nine. But the average three-point specialist, four to five times a game, not 1.6. They shoot with the same percentage, if not higher, but they shoot it more often because it's a part of their game. Dirk Nowitzki, he's a stretch four or stretch five, depending on where you put him in the in the lineup. He shot 38% from behind the arc on 3.4 attempts per game. Part of his game was, let's draw up some plays to put him in the corner. Let's draw up some plays to get him on a wing. How do you counteract that? The fact that he's really good in mid-range too. That's a part of his game. AD is not actively searching to shoot the ball from the three-point line. And if he is, if that's what the Lakers are doing, which at times they were, (laughs) it's not going to work. He is so good around the basket. He is so, he has such great touch around the basket. He can finish with touch. He can finish with violence. It doesn't matter. He's an inside scorer who has the ability to shoot threes should it come to that. But he's not a stretch four, and he's not the complement that Russell Westbrook or LeBron need. 
Joel Embiid's another one. He's a stretch five. He shoots 34% from behind the arc, 3.5 times a game. Just stop calling AD a stretch four. They need actual shooters in order for that to have worked. And all three of them weren't going to work. Also, stop blaming Westbrook. Okay? I, I'm, you know what? I'm getting a little too... <laughs> I'm getting a little too accusatory. But I'm tired of hearing that Westbrook is the reason that that team didn't work. Westbrook was told that he's the third scoring option and he needs to develop a jump shot in order to get most of his touches. That's not how Westbrook has ever played the game. That is not how Westbrook dropped a triple-double for three straight seasons. That's not how he broke Oscar Robertson, uh, uh, Oscar Robertson's record. Say that five times fast. Just let him play. And I was actually really excited to see him on Utah because Utah has some really good young shooters. And they have, um, they have a young center as well. His name is escaping me. But I was excited to see him on there. Seeing him on the Clippers, I think it's a better fit. He had success with Paul George. Paul George can shoot. Kawhi can shoot. And Kawhi's a defender. I think that that one will work. I think that's going to work out nicely. Do I think that they need another piece? Like a role player? Yeah, I think they do. Preferably a shooter. Preferably a big man who only grabs rebounds. But I think that it's going to work out a lot better. But... Before I get too far into that, here's my final thoughts. This new way of thinking, this new super team era, it doesn't work. Stars think they're going to win games because they're better on paper. It doesn't work. Unless everyone buys in. And you saw that with Kevin Durant, which is why I think Durant to the Phoenix Suns, I don't think he's going to lose a step. He's not going to lose a single step. And if anything, Phoenix is going to get leaps and bounds better. And they were already really good. But you got egos and the need for playing time and the need for uh, an offense to be based around certain players. It becomes an issue. And coaches are on a tight leash. I mean, I didn't do the math. Go look at the <laughs> go go look at the job security nowadays for head coaches in the NBA. Yeah, Greg Popovich, Eric Spolstra, Steve Kerr. Name me another one that's that's been there for for as long as those guys. Sure, Doc Rivers has been in the league, but he's been bouncing around as of late. He was a longtime Celtic. And then he went to the Clippers. And then he went to the Sixers. And he's a great coach. But it all comes down to culture. It really does. It comes down to culture and just the fact that it's like, you know, yeah, it didn't work when you put LeBron and Westbrook on the same team and they don't work together because they both need the opposite in order to be successful. I'm, I'm really excited to see the next rebuild project work out. I really am. But with that being said, this has been a deep dive with TJ O'Sullivan. 
Brought to you by NCT Sports, and we will see you next time. All right, man. Thank you, TJ. Um, I will see here and say, you know, very informative. I agree with you. I believe the uh, um, end of the Big Three era has been um, is over, to be honest, um, because it, it, it eloquently put it about culture. Um, I will sit here and say this, and this is something we talked about on. I said a few days ago we were talking on the phone is and I'll leave you leave everyone with this as my final thought a team of superstars will always lose to a true team you said the 2010 Miami was the first true um one called super team I agree with that statement. I, I honestly, I think the 2008 Celtics were the first. Um, but there you also have two other op- two other options. I think the 96 to 98 Bulls was a beta test because you had Jordan, you had Pippen, you add Dennis Rodman, you add a Steve Kerr, makes your team better. That was the first like beta test for the big three. Then you got the 2003-2004 Lakers. You have Kobe. You have Shaq. They're the three-time defending NBA champions. And what do they do? They get Gary Payton and Carl Malone. And less said about how controversial he is, the better. But just on the court, one of the best of all time. They literally, that was another beta test. They gifted the Los Angeles Lakers a 4P. And you know what happened? Somebody forgot to tell Detroit, a team that on paper had no business sniffing the Eastern Conference Finals. But they won the Eastern Conference Finals. And they won the NBA Finals over that super team. Then they, that's when they figured out, okay, that's where culture comes in. That is why Boston succeeded. They had the culture. That is why the Lakers succeeded. They had the culture in 2008-2009. In, uh, that's why Miami succeeded. Yeah, they went 2-2 two and two in finals, but they still had a good run. That's why they succeeded. They had culture. Even when Durant came to Golden State, that's why they succeeded and still do. They have culture. Why did Cleveland fail? Well, they won one world title. Yes, they were in the, they were in the same era as Golden State. And Golden State was a team built through the draft, not by free agency. And you can't count that Cleveland team as a super team because none of those three players were on. Yeah, LeBron comes back. Cool, whatever. But he wasn't on that team in 2000. 
13. He was in Miami. So, but great, great job, TJ. I am enthralled to hear more of the uh, deep dives you do when your podcast debuts. Make sure you stay uh, stay tuned to the Blind Tag Podcast Instagram. We will be debuting the new season right before the start of the NCAA tournament. NCT Sports is our Instagram handle. Once we get uh, everything settled, we will make sure to uh, let you know when the debut is. And we will go from there. But I hope everyone has a great rest of the day. And if you're not having a great day, you just need to will it into existence. See y'all in a couple weeks.